like a white noise. It's like a little sound sound show. I started back in September of 2000 as a music analyst. That's Steve Hogan. And I was just playing music locally, and a musician friend of mine, true story, saw an advertisement on a telephone pole. It said, flexible part-time job for musicians. So he tore the little tab off, and we came in and applied and took the qualifying test and got the job. Steve and a bunch of other music analysts would come into the office, put on headphones, and listen to song after song after song, one by one. The point was to rate music according to hundreds of attributes, things like aggressive drumming or funky grooves. That project to systematically work through all this music was called the Music Genome Project. And the company was Savage Beast Technologies. But you probably know it by a different name now, Pandora. The Pandora radio service was launched in 2005, but the Music Genome Project was started years before that. In the beginning, the company got a lot of credit for using humans to analyze music when everyone else seemed to be moving toward automation. The project is more than 16 years old now, so we wanted to know, did it work? Welcome to Sound Show. I'm John Lago-Marcino. And I'm Adrienne Jeffries. Today we're talking about the Music Genome Project and what happened to it. The Internet's music ecosystem has changed dramatically since the project began, but the Music Genome Project is still chugging along. Meanwhile, Pandora's competitors, like Spotify and Apple Music, rely on automated music analysis, where computers listen to music and make connections between songs. But Pandora is sticking by its very manual approach. Why? Okay, so if you look at Google Trends data, which roughly reflects how much something is being talked about and searched on the internet, you can see that the Music Genome Project was super hot when it was first announced. Okay, so we're looking at 2005 to 2006 here. So there was even a moment when the Music Genome Project was trendier than organic chicken. You're not lying. Well, it's a very rough proxy, but yeah. Then the trend line starts to fall. Just to be clear, Pandora itself was still pretty hot. Although it has struggled with profitability, the company went public in 2011, and today it claims 78 million monthly active users and 4 million paying subscribers. But the Music Genome Project, this epic undertaking, is definitely no longer in the spotlight. So let's first understand what the Music Genome Project is. Like we said, Pandora uses hundreds of musical attributes to categorize songs. They call those attributes genes. Now, let's just get this out of the way. These terms are used very loosely. It seems like an odd name and um, somewhat of a subjective way to do it. That's Dr. Lawrence Brody. He's a geneticist, and he actually studies genomes and worked on the actual Human Genome Project. The word DNA is used in common usage. You hear about 
DNA being used as an advertising slogan or corporate DNA or it's in our DNA to do this. Well, genome is, is starting to get creeping in, in in the same way. There's the Book Genome Project, the Art Genome Project, but these aren't really genome projects per se. They're what we would call phylogenetic projects. And that just means looking at the elements that are in something complicated, like a song. And seeing how they compare to other songs. And from that, you essentially can build uh, the equivalent of a family tree. And that's sort of what Pandora is doing. It's using the Music Genome Project to make connections between songs and relate them to each other in meaningful ways. The genes are used to recommend new music that Pandora thinks you'll like with a precision you supposedly couldn't get elsewhere. That's why when you're listening to a song in Pandora, you'll see things like, we're playing this for you because it features rock influences, vocal samples, surreal lyrics, use of modal harmonies, and the use of chordal patterning. Pandora says those descriptors aren't exactly the same as the genes. The genes are secret. What users see are, quote, focus traits. Descriptors that the website shows you to give you a general idea of what the genes mean. But the genes are what the analysts see, and they assign numbers to each gene. These days, Steve oversees music analysis, so he's in charge of the process. We score everything on a five-point scale, but it's in half points. So it's really a ten-point scale, basically? Zero is an option, too, so I guess you could say it's an 11-point scale. Pandora groups music into pretty specific genres. Pandora calls those genres genomes. Right, genomes, because of science. Yes. Each quote-unquote genome has its own specific set of genes. We have seven genomes that we refer to. When I first started, all we had was our pop or main genome. That's still the genome with most of the music in Pandora. But there are others, like rap, hip-hop, electronic, jazz, Latin and world, classical, and even comedy. Back when the Music Genome Project first started, a man named Nolan Gasser was at the helm. Gasser isn't with Pandora anymore, but he's been referred to as the architect of the project. And he seems sort of obsessed with turning musical taste into a science. Well, in my work, I've identified three sources of our musical taste. That's Gasser at a TEDx talk in 2015. The first comes from the realm of science, the physics-based properties of sound, and our physiological reception to them. He really believes this stuff. Here he is in a 538 video claiming that music can treat cancer symptoms. Using the knowledge I've acquired working on the Music Genome Project, I'm now working with a leading cancer treatment hospital to create an algorithm that identifies the ideal music to treat cancer-related ailments like fatigue, pain, anxiety, and nausea. That seems like dangerous bullshit. Yeah, that's kind of a new-agey side project he has going now. His main theory, though, is that due to some fundamental properties of sound, plus our own physiology, each of us is predisposed to respond to certain music. You pepper in some influence from your local culture, and you've got musical taste. Here's some more from that TEDx talk. Every piece of music has its own collective musical genotype that defines it, all the things that are going on in all these parameters, and that in various ways will will sort of relate to our own musical taste, positively and or negatively, likely both. And when it does correlate positively, it then becomes a reflection of our musical genotype. Okay, this is gibberish, right? Yes. And to be clear, Pandora has definitely distanced themselves from him over time. But still, at the beginning... 
Gasser and Pandora founder Tim Westergren broke music down into five, quote, primary parameters. They were melody, harmony, rhythm, form, and sound. And then they developed a list of hundreds of genes. And the idea was to use those genes and make a radio station perfectly tailored to your taste based on those genes. So is there anything to this idea that you can use a tagging system like this to describe any piece of music? Well, that's controversial. And we've been down this road at least once before. One example is a system called Cantometrics, and that was developed by the late ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax. He and his team used a system where they ranked songs on 37, quote, style factors like breathiness, rasp, and nasality using a five-point scale. There are a lot of problems with Cantometrics, though. Lomax's system was heavily skewed towards European sensibilities. He also tried to connect his observations about a culture's music to its habits around sex and the treatment of children and referred to some societies' music as, quote, primitive, which was totally unscientific and racist. But the idea of cantometrics as a system for describing musical attributes has stuck around in some circles. And I get it. It makes sense to want to understand what makes music music. But it's a really tricky thing to get right, especially when you consider all the different musics around the world and what people even consider music in the first place. Each of the genomes has hundreds of genes associated with it. The most you could possibly have if you were analyzing a piece of Indian classical music would be about 450 genes. That's a lot of genes. And it takes a lot of time and people to get through them. Hannah Glass is a music analyst, and obviously she's into music. I was working at a record store before I upgraded to Pandora. (laughs) Hannah's been a musician her whole life. She plays in a few bands, and she went to UC Berkeley to study music. A music degree, getting me money, who'd have thought? That's pretty typical for Pandora's analysts. They're all musicians themselves, most of them have music degrees, and they all have to take a music theory test before getting the job. And they all have these little MIDI keyboards on their desks. Hannah works in the hip-hop genome. Each day, she puts on a pair of headphones, logs into the Music Genome Project's web backend, and starts playing songs. And then it asks her a bunch of questions. Questions like musical texture, are there acoustic instruments, what acoustic instruments are there, are they working as strumming or picking rhythm. It'll ask about lyrics, mood. There's also harmonic analysis. So how chromatic is it? Is it diatonic? Um, How many times does it modulate? How many sections does it have? And it goes on like that for her whole shift. If I work five hours a day, my goal is about 12 hip-hop songs. And we have a certain kind of quota that we have to meet. And then apart, yeah, after that, it's as much as we can do. We get paid per song, so that's encouraging. 12 songs a day. Multiply that by the 30 or so analysts, and Pandora is only adding around 360 new tracks a day. That's probably why its catalog growth has been so much slower than its competitors. This human process just takes a long time. So far, Pandora has fewer than 2 million tracks analyzed like this. So naturally, Pandora, which is based in Oakland, California, is working with a subset of music that is mostly Western popular songs— And identifying what genes to include in the genome seems to be somewhat shrouded. But Steve and his team are taking steps to make sure that there is consistency in the scores. We tried to throw out those characteristics that we couldn't find agreement on. 
So the idea is to make it as objective as we can. Now, the actual list of genes themselves is a secret, but we can get a glimpse of the process by looking at those focus traits you see while Pandora is playing, and they're not always so straightforward. Um, I want to give you a pop quiz. Okay. What's sensational sack butlery? You know, that was kind of uh, an Easter egg that we put in there. The sack butt is an instrument. So what it says is that the sack butt is present in the song and that the instrumental technical demands was scored high. And we made up that word sack butlery completely, by the way. <laughs> we, we literally didn't think anybody would ever see that. Bumpin' kick sound. Bumpin' kick sound. There's another thing we measure that is tight to booming. So whether the production of that sound, if it's got like a very tight attack, boom, versus a booming sound where you kind of elongate, boom, boom. Um, so the bumpin' just says it's a prominent kick drum with more of an elongated tone. I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you agree, that Pandora has struggled a bit in its effort to become a big business. Yeah, uh, the company lost more than $250 million in 2016. Yeah, there's that. And it's also never been profitable. Pandora was an early player, but the internet music space has gotten super competitive. There's Apple Music and Google Music and Spotify and Amazon Music and a bunch of others, and all of these competitors have tens of millions of songs, much larger than Pandora, in large part because they don't do the whole human bespoke listening thing. Okay, quick, find a computer scientist who works on music informatics. Hi, my name is Brian McPhee. I'm a, what am I? <laughs> I'm a research fellow at NYU in the Center for Data Science and Music and Audio Research Lab. Brian started working on computer vision. Then he switched over to computer hearing. The closest analog that you would have to like recognizing faces would be, say, instrument identification. Like, here's a song, is there vocals anywhere in the song? Is there a drum? Stuff like that. Computers are pretty good at picking up on some things, like tempo and loudness and instrumentation. But they're not as good at analyzing emotion or lyrical meaning. I mean, hell, I'm not very good at those things either. But generally, things like funky grooves and aggressive drumming are too subtle for a computer to pick out. That's why a lot of the automation that is done at places like Spotify and Apple Music and even Pandora does some of this too, it seems, relies on tracking listening history and the habits of other users. So like if one person likes song X, song Y, and song Z, and song Q, and another person likes songs X, Y, and Z, you can say, okay, second person, maybe you'll like this other song Q. Makes sense. You can't do this when you have a new song, however, or a new user who doesn't have a listening history. That's called the cold start problem. It's why every music streaming service needs some form of classification system just to get started making recommendations. Is computer analysis of music at the point where it's close to human analysis of music for that purpose? Um, I would hedge a little and say yes and no. Okay. Um, it is in terms of just kind of getting you something that's better than random and getting you something that's kind of in the ballpark of what you might like. But I think all of these streaming services that have people doing either machine learning, data science-y things on music or annotation of music like Pandora was doing, I think all of them know that you need both. 
Oh, the old you need both hedge. I just want to know if the humans or the robots are going to win. <laughs> so just we, tell me. <laughs> so we asked Brian point blank, is Pandora wasting its time having trained musicians do what the computers can do pretty decently and much faster? Should Pandora give up on the Music Genome Project and concede victory to our machine overlords? I, I think it only makes sense if it ends up leading to a better product that people would use more. Um, if scalability is their bottleneck and they need to be able to analyze more tracks more quickly, maybe with less accuracy, then that probably would be the right choice. It's not clear that that's their problem, though. Right? Like, size of catalog may or may not be their, their main issue. Well, that was a reasoned, nuanced answer. Fair. And then we asked Pandora the same question. It turns out Pandora's been using a lot more machine learning than people may realize. We have a team here now for the last three years who are experts in the field of machine listening. So we have a pretty good understanding of what machines are capable of. And it's, uh, it was a big relief to me after doing this for a while that we have found that the human analysis still has huge value and makes us a lot more efficient. But another thing to mention about that actually is the machine approach that we have, the machines here at Pandora are trained by the data set that we have from the Music Genome Project. In the academic world, if they want to build, uh, say, an algorithm to interpret music, they have to get what they call ground truth. So they'll try to round up people to actually listen to music and and do what we do, you know, score a bunch of details about the music. If you're just at a university somewhere, you know, the best you can do really is a few thousand songs because you just don't have the money to pay people to do it. Uh, but these guys came to Pandora, and we already had, you know, way over a million songs done, so they had this data set that w they just couldn't believe. So I feel like actually we we have a real advantage even in the machine listening in addition to the advantage that we get from understanding the music through the human side. Can we just run down the pros and cons of the humans versus robots approach? Mm, I don't know if I really want to know the answer, but sure. So Brian pointed out that most streaming services tend to have a long tail of songs that no one ever listens to, while Pandora uses humans to curate which music to accept into its catalog. Pandora noticeably has a different catalog than the others. It's much smaller, but also doesn't have that long tail of like 10,000 versions of Happy Birthday. In 2013, Spotify said 20% of its songs had never been streamed. That's 4 million songs that were never listened to by anyone. So this seems like a clear point for Pandora. Mm -hmm. Spotify still has at least 20 times as many songs as Pandora that people do listen to, though. Okay, point for algorithms. And Spotify and Apple Music both have way more paying subscribers than Pandora. That's a point for algorithms. Right, because Pandora is human. And Pandora seems to be acknowledging that it's falling behind by rolling out this new on-demand product that they call Premium, which will debut sometime this year. I'm not sure that's a clear point for anyone. But on the other hand, Pandora has all this investor pressure and it still hasn't ditched its human curators. You would think that the shareholders would have wanted that. So that's a point for Pandora. That makes two to two, mm. humans versus machines. I don't, I don't know how comfortable I am being in a tie with the robots. <laughs> None of this even takes into account the important role that human DJs still play. Like, commercial radio stations are increasingly using software too, but there's still demand for people with that golden ear who know music really well and can create masterful playlists. 
Apple even launched a whole radio station, Beats One, specifically as this more personal, traditional complement to its on-demand streaming system. Right. Linear radio has momentum, uncertainty, tone, unpredictability. These are all aspects of music that elaborate algorithms can get wrong. So when we first started researching this, my assumption was going to be that Pandora was like basically holding on to this music genome project thing out of sentimentality and denial. Like it's clearly totally fine to use computers to do this and the company isn't doing that great. So I thought, I bet the music genome project will be phased out and that's why they aren't talking about it anymore and they're going to give up on this elaborate system that was like helpful as a marketing thing but doesn't really make a huge difference to the user. And now your mind has changed? Well, yes. Now I feel like it's actually a really valuable approach. Like Brian said, you need both human and computer. And it's it's uh, it's actually really cool that we have all these choices for streaming music and that there are meaningful differences between them. But let's say that Pandora did it. They 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 did the music genome project and they figured out okay. the genome, right? All the music is in the project. There's right. hundreds of attributes. All of the music is okay. is in there. The ideal version of this project presumably would leave you with a, like a perfect simulation of, of taste and of music. And then if we were feeling really bold, we could take a leap off of that and say, okay, with all this data, it should be able to answer the question, what is music? But that's fundamentally an unanswerable question. Right? Well, what they're trying to do is figure out how to label and rate music according to the things that make it important for recommendations. So the things that people pay attention to when they're listening to music. People who are in the academic world are concerned with this and they're asking, what is music? And it's kind of like a fun intellectual exercise. But for Pandora, I'm just not sure that that's really what the Music Genome Project is concerned with or that even if it did successfully catalog all the music in the world, that it would have an answer to that question. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. This story was produced by John Longamarcino and me, Adrian Jeffries. Special thanks to Jeremy Dalmas, Pat Savage, Sam Mayer, Manveer Singh, and Richard Harker. Sound Show is a production of The Outline, a stupendous new website you can visit at theoutline.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, at Outline. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to Sound Show on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next time. 